Welcome to the First Take podcast with Michael Flanagan and myself, Simon King. On this week's episode, we discuss why Gilead is getting flack for a positive cancer drug study, how the once darling of the gene therapy field Bluebird Bio is running short of cash, and an important win for Bristol-Myers Squibbs of Devo in neoadjuvant non-small cell lung cancer. So this week, Gilead announced that a closely watched clinical study it's running for a breast cancer drug met its primary endpoint, but the company didn't disclose any detailed results. And whilst this is a fairly standard practice with data often held back for presentation at a medical conference, in this instance likely to be ASCO in June, Gilead has come under some scrutiny. Michael, what is it that the company said or not said that has got the street talking this week? Yeah, so this is the Tropics. O2 trial, which is, you know, it's been closely watched uh, for a while now, especially coming into this year. Uh, it was thought to be one of the, the bigger inflection points, especially for Gilead in 2022. The, the key to the study is Gilead is hoping to expand use of the TROP2 antibody drug conjugate Trodelvi beyond triple negative breast cancer and into, you know, additional segments of the metastatic breast cancer market. So this is very important, basically crucial, is the company's $21 billion acquisition of Munimedics in 2020, which brought Tredelvi in the door. If that investment is going to pay off, Tredelvi obviously needs to expand into uh, some more markets. So the top line results here from Tropics 02 was reported this week, and the you know the headline announcement was positive. Tredelvi succeeded on the primary endpoint of PFS, but that is largely where the good vibrations kind of come to a stop. So Gilead said there was a positive trend on overall survival as well. That, that isn't necessarily a big problem uh, because this is just sort of the first interim analysis for that endpoint. However, uh, and this gets to your question, Gilead had been messaging that it would actually disclose some data in this top line readout. But then when it came down to it, uh, they, had, uh, they went in a different direction. And, and decided not to actually include data. So, you know, investors inevitably looking to read into things as they always do, read into this non-disclosure uh, that it, Gilead just is not overly excited about the results. So basically the street is now assuming that the PFS must not be that impressive for, for Tredelby. Uh, and that's notable for two reasons, or perhaps more accurately notable because of two competing antibody drug conjugates that are in development from AstraZeneca and partner Daiichi Sankyo, uh, both of which may end up being problems for Gilead and Tredelvi. So the first of these is in HER2, which just hit the mark in a phase three trial in HER2 low patients. Uh, and the companies were notably enthusiastic about trumpeting these results in the press release. So analysts expect that there will be some uh, there'll be some overlap between this HER2 low uh, population and then the HR positive HER2 negative setting, which is where Tredelvi is going in, in Tropics 2. So there's going to be some overlap there and AstraZeneca's excitement about their results suggests that they probably have a better uh, a better readout there. Now, secondly, and perhaps more problematic in the long term, 
is another ADC. This one actually uh, going against TROP2, just like, just like Tradelvi. So this one, Datopatamab, Derux Tcan. Hopefully I got that about right. So this is in phase three testing, also from AstraZeneca and Daiichi in the very same HR positive, uh, HER2 negative setting. And analysts are now beginning to suspect that AstraZeneca and Daiichi really may have a better mousetrap with their ADC based on, you know, some results in other tumor types, triple negative, and I think lung cancer. So all this adds basically further fuel to the fire uh, about, uh, you know, questions uh, related to Gilead's business development acumen. So this has been under scrutiny for years now, as the company has repeatedly come up short in their, you know, long stated goal to establish, you know, a bona fide oncology division to complement their historical success in the vi virology field. So if you add in the problems with the company's other big acquisition. So they have a $21 billion acquisition of Immunomedics recently. They also recently paid $5 billion for 47 for an anti-CD47 antibody. And that program has just run into some recent safety issues as well. So uh, suffice to say, you know, Gilead has a lot of work to do to convince the street that number one, their oncology effort is going to pay off. And number two, that their business development uh, skills are up to snuff. So those are the, uh, that's sort of the story there. Announcing its full year results this week, Bluebird Bio warned that dwindling cash reserves have raised doubts about its ability to stay afloat beyond 2022. Now, this is quite a turnaround for a company that just a few years ago appeared to be spearheading the revolution in gene therapy. Yeah, I mean, this is quite the dramatic fall from grace, I would say. Uh, a few years ago, Bluebird, uh, Bluebird Bio was worth about $11 billion. Today, it's less. Um, it's worth less than $350 million. Uh, the company said that revenue was $3.7 million last year, and it recorded net losses of $563 million. It's got about $397 million in cash, but it's projected to spend just short of $400 million over the course of 2022. So that sort of sums up the predicament that the company finds itself in. I, I mean, I think it's worth just highlighting that the Bluebird Bio, as it was, actually split into two separate businesses just over a year ago, effectively spinning out its cancer uh, pipeline and portfolio into a separate company called 270 Bio. Um, that, that became effective at the end of, of last year. But really, since that split was announced, it's almost been kind of like a perfect storm uh, of setbacks for Bluebird and its retained focus on rare genetic diseases. You know, it's seen the FDA issue a clinical hold for its sickle cell gene therapy. That was at the beginning of last year, then, it, then the FDA lifted it, but then it's reimposed some additional uh, partial restrictions earlier this year. Um, the company's seen US approval for two rare disease gene therapies delayed with regulatory decisions now expected in August and September this year. And these include the beta thalassemia treatment, Zinteglo. And it's probably, I guess if you had to sort of zero in on one factor, it's probably uh, Bluebird's inability to sort of effectively 
launch and market that drug in Europe, where it actually initially secured approval back in 2019, but was unable to negotiate acceptable pricing and reimbursement with regional payers. It's really that um, setback, I think, that's really put the company into such a dramatic tailspin. I think moving forward, I think FDA approval of these two products later in 2022, if it happens, is, is sort of tantamount to, to near-term survival and a potential turnaround in the company's fortunes. Um, Bluebird has sort of said this week that it, you know, it's, it should receive priority review vouchers um, for one or both of those approvals and has already sort of earmarked plans to sell those and together they could fetch about $200 million based on, on the recent price that those, those vouchers have sold for. And then I think if those products get approved, there's gonna be some, you know, it, there's still some question marks really over, over those as well in terms of the manufacturing process. But I think if those products do get approved in the US, that will at least provide perhaps a slightly clearer view on whether, you know, the company struggles in Europe were purely driven by market dynamics I guess giving them a bit of a benefit of the doubt, there was probably some, some sort of unfortunate timing with the pandemic. And I guess also, you know, whether Bluebird, whether the management team has learned any valuable lessons, um, you know, from their experience in Europe, or just whether there is, uh, you know, the inability to make meaningful commercial sort of inroads is perhaps illustrative of the broader challenges uh, faced by gene, gene therapy. So I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how those products pan out if they are approved. I think you know it's worth mentioning that both of those are, are in small indications. It feels like from a commercial perspective, there's the, this sickle cell gene therapy that, that the company is working on feels like it could be um, the kind of the key product in a way in terms of sort of turning uh, the commercial story round for Bluebird Bio, but like I said, it remains under a partial clinical hold from the FDA, and this field is becoming increasingly crowded with other gene therapy and gene editing players as well. So it does look like it's it's a bit of a sticky situation for Bluebird Bio at the moment. I think the other thing that's worth flagging is obviously that decision to spin out the oncology business last year. You know that was described about. 12 months ago, I think it was actually at, at last year's JP Morgan conference. Now it was described as a move to unlock value, allow each kind of uh, component company to focus more. But I think in hindsight, it looks like something of a red flag. I mean, it's interesting that 270 Bio also faces some challenges going ahead, uh, going forward. Its near-term performance is going to be tied exclusively to a BECMA, which is the BCMA targeting CAR-T therapy. Um, that's already approved for relapse refractory multiple myeloma that it co-markets with BMS but that products face supply issues and the FDA has now just approved Janssen and Legends Carvicti we discussed that product last week and actually just moments ago I gl glanced at a new um, key opinion leader interview that, that we did earlier in the week and the expert we spoke to said that he thinks Carvicti clearly looks like a superior uh, product of the two so um you know, I think, I think Bluebird managed to become a pretty valuable company just based on the promise of future sales and, you know, the, the promise of its, of its research and development approach. And it's going to be interesting now to see if 270 Bio uh, can pull off the same trick, particularly with biotech investor sentiment already at 
you know, a, a new low in terms of in terms of recent year performance. Speaking of, of BMS, and on a more positive note, uh, the U.S. drug maker said this week that its PD-1 inhibitor Opdivo has been approved for the neoadjuvant treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. That makes it the first to gain clearance in this setting. Uh, what's the story there? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that jumps out with this approval is the speed at which the FDA has made its decision, which I guess we can assume speaks to the clinical data and the unmet needs. You know, interestingly, BMS only confirmed that its filing had been accepted on February the 28th. Um, and then it actually announced the approval, I think it was four days later. It's been approved under the FDA's real-time oncology review pilot program. Um, and, it, and the approvals come four months ahead of schedule. It was initially, the Padufa date was initially mid-July. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's an important approval in this sort of pre-operative setting because Obdivo has obviously lost some ground in the metastatic market to, to Keytruda, Merkin, Merkin Co's PD-1 inhibitor, which is the dominant product there. I mean, I think if we look back, I think when initial data were released last year, um, they showed that the combination of Obdivo and chemotherapy had a pathological complete response rate of 24% versus I think it was 2.2% for chemotherapy on its own. And there was a sort of an equal, I guess I'd describe it as an equal amount of enthusiasm and caution from key opinion leaders we spoke to. They really wanted to see how that would translate to event-free survival, which was the other co-primary endpoint in the Checkmate 816 study, which is the trial that BMS has been running, evaluating Obdivo in the setting. And then data released later last year did show that the median event-free survival um, for the Obdivo chemo combination was 31.6 months versus 20.8 months for chemotherapy on its own. And that's obviously, that's data that has, has clearly found favor with the FDA as well. Um, I mean, analysts at Bernstein forecast that the, the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor market could expand by up to a third based on these neoadjuvant and adjuvant approvals that we're now starting to see across multiple tumor types. Um, in lung cancer, Rochester-centric has been approved to, sit, to treat some um, non-small cell lung cancer patients in the adjuvant or post-surgery setting. And uh, there was some positive top-line data for Keytruda in the adjuvant setting, I think that was announced in January. So we should probably see that um, at, at an up, upcoming medical conference. And then I think the other thing to note is that Bristol's currently running the Checkmate 77T study, which is evaluating um, Obdivo as a periadjuvant therapy, which can be used, you know, studying it before and after surgery for early stage non-small cell lung cancer. So having seen Obdivo now get this sort of landmark approval in the neoadjuvant setting, I think that study is going to be one to keep an eye out for.